around a little longer until I understand you. He said, well, if that's your attitude, you can hang around because I don't understand myself. So I hung around. There was another possibility suggested to me, strongly suggested, and that was that maybe the best thing to do would be to take the sundial motto, count only the sunny hours, write a book which would appeal to the public in that it would tell all the nice things about Robespierre. But there weren't really enough sunny hours when you got backstage and, and got to understand there was instead terrible tragedy in this story. And uh, I couldn't then do it that way. What really had the most profound effect on me, I think, was going back over something that I should have remembered or did not remember, but accidentally read. And this was a statement made by a famous critic. He was also a famous biographer, long dead, a famous biographer of poets. That's was Samuel Johnson. Many of you must remember that in Boswell's first chapter of the life of Johnson, he raises this whole question of counting only the sunny hours. And this matter as to whether a biography should be panegyric or whether the portrait should paint the face warts and all. And he uh, quotes Johnson on this particular point, what seems to me a wonderful passage. He found it in one of the Rambler essays. And uh, Johnson starts off something like this. If the biographer has familiarity with the subject, the man he's writing about, and if he makes too much haste to please the public by giving the public what he knows the public wants, then uh, his admiration for his subject and his fear of offending or various other factors may cause him to manipulate the facts in such a way that he invents certain fictions. Johnson goes on to say that uh, many biographers are too much impressed by the feeling of the uh, respect and regard that they must have for the uh, subject under consideration. But, says Johnson, this is just sentence I'm after. But while we do owe regard to the dead, we owe even higher regard to knowledge and truth. Well, I was so moved by that when I found it while I was suffering through these problems that I copied it out on my typewriter and nailed it to my wall. Even as I kept studying that and saying, by golly, I am going to do as well balanced a biography as I can, but I will not conceal things which will get me into trouble. Uh, the thing that kept coming up was the critic, the critic, the critic, for this reason, that the discrepancy between I had the feeling that the critic, the serious critic, the Thomas Lash, for example,
you've committed yourself now to such a thing. How do you deal with that problem? Well, those are looking at things. Uh, in scholarship, know that there is one way to deal with that. That is as gently as possible, with as much objectivity as possible, to balance your sympathy. You state what are the facts, and then you document them. And if you can't make your documentation carefully, then you can be challenged. I had all the documentation. I knew I had enough of it. I still was not convinced. I could persuade my readers, either the public, or the delay critics, or the professional critics, that my portrait of Robert Frost was a fair, just, honest portrait. And in that very period, when I worried about that, I decided to change my whole plan of attack. I decided to not even start writing the first volume of the biography until I had produce a volume of documents. And those documents would be selected letters of Robert Frost. How would this do any good? My hope was that if I could push Frost out on stage and let him be the actor, and I'd be backstage, I could let him unmask himself in certain ways, which would somehow uh, prepare a path for me to proceed. I did that. The book was published by Frost Publish just a year after he died. How did the critics react? With extremely divergent responses. In the Saturday Review, I was uh, severely attacked by a biographer. Most of the reviews, though, were favorable, and some of them saw exactly what I was trying to do. And I tried to explain gently, or hint at least, what I was trying to do in my introduction to that volume. And some of the reviews said that the image of Robert Frost, which appears here, is going to force us to make adjustments entirely. Uh, I thought, all right, now I'm ready to go ahead and write the first volume. I wrote the first volume, and it was published without much preparation. Immediately, the question was, had I prepared the ground adequately, how would the reviewers react? Once again, the critics came up with extremely divergent views. Some of the reviews were very favorable, and some of them were severe and caustic. One of my favorite reviews was by Mr. Thomas Lab. One of the things which he said that touched me deeply because I'd worked so hard for it was that this book showed a balance and perspective which was admirable and necessary under the circumstances. He went on to explain what the problem was. Uh, at the other, on the other side, a book in the uh, Saturday uh, Review, the Saturday Review by Louis Undermeyer, really faulted me me to pieces, and I studied this. I think that all of us who, who write do two things when we get a review. One of them is to read it, to suffer through it for whatever it says, and you go back over it. 
if you see what you can use it for, what use it is. When I got through, it was pretty clear that, that he was trying to tell the public that this would have been a better book if it had been written by Louis Andermeyer, which didn't help me very much to have him say that. Another review, a scorcher, appeared in the New York Times Book Review, buying double spread with free photographs across the various pages of the early years. This was by Richard Poirier, professor of English at Rutgers University. He found not one single thing to like in the volume. In fact, he pointed out that the whole book was, was wrongly organized. The very central thing that I should have noticed, I'd missed entirely. I think I can almost quote him. I can give an accurate paraphrase of one sentence where he says this. What is most needed in an understanding of uh, young Frost uh, is an awareness of the enormous sexual energy of the young man and of the relationship between that energy and other parts of his life, including his poetry. Well, it's true that there is usually enormous sexual energy in young men. But what he really went on to imply was that the proper pitch in getting to Frost was a Freudian interpretation of Frost. I was not convinced, so I had to go on. But my point on that first volume was that it was already clear that majority of the reviews were so favorable that I had the feeling that with the preparation of the selected letters as documents, with this first volume out now where I so carefully and sympathetically tried to take Frost through the uh, really terrible early years, even in his childhood, early years. Uh, just one example, his father was a quick-tempered man who beat him with anything handy and once he beat him with a dog chain. These left marks on that man. He left physical marks as a matter of fact, but I'm talking about the psychological marks. And there were certain uh, wounds which did not heal. And I had the feeling that in that first volume I'd shown that as a result of some of these harsh things that happened to that young man, you could even predict, you could foresee that there were going to be certain neurotic responses that he was going to make. And if you sympathized with how those things had happened, then you could understand what would otherwise be and what had been for me for a long time, outrageous characterizations of the performances. So, hoping that that first volume and the selected letters had prepared everybody for now much more complicated and much more uh, embarrassing things that I had to say I came out with volume two this fall. How did the critics react? The same way. Some of the reviews were diametrically opposed to each other. Uh, Mr. Last disappointed me. I told him I was going to tease him a little tonight. Mr. Last disappointed me by uh, starting off his review by uh, saying that uh, the portrait of Robert Frost, which uh, appeared here, was uh, 
so unattractive, really so uh, reprehensible that uh, one could not help wondering whether Mr. Thompson realized what he was doing. Well, my answer to that was, as I've said, before I even wrote the first chapter, the first volume, I had realized that I was going to stick my neck out and I was going to get a whack. I had realized that the critics would be after me and I had hoped I could persuade the critics to understand what I was trying to do. And, uh, Mr. Lass went on to say, among other things, that he wondered what Mr. Frost would say of such a portrait. Well, I thought I'd tried to take care of that one because I pointed out in my prefaces to the first two volumes, Mr. Frost had succeeded for years in deceiving his public into thinking of him as a sweet old North of Boston farmer. And if anybody tried to tell the truth about what kind of man Robert Frost was, in the sense that the artist and the human being are forever at odds with each other, uh, how could Robert Frost like that? And the answer was that obviously Robert Frost would not approve of having anyone describe him as he actually some of the reviews were very good. When John Aldrich wrote what I considered really a, a fine, formal essay. They don't give Mr. Last enough space for him to do this long essay. Uh, but this was in the Saturday Review, a very long essay, in which he pointed out that uh, the portrait of Frost that appeared here was not as appealing perhaps to some people as what he called the uh, Mount Rushmore stereotype in which the uh, memory of Frost uh, was, quote, reverently entombed by so many people. But he said, after you get to understand the way this man actually was, uh, something comes out of this which is uh, uh, even more admirable than what we had before. And he went on at some length to defend me. I was defended in another formal essay, a lengthy essay by uh, Robert Kirk. I don't know whether many of you know his name, but he's out on the West Coast, writes for the Los Angeles Times. Beautiful review, uh, which he entitled Frost, A Bursting Unity of Opposites. Great quotation from the book, and I was so delighted he filled his whole essay around that phrase. But at the same time, uh, I was uh, attacked. I said they were diametrically opposed to views. The worst one, or the best one, however you want to look at it, appeared in the New York Times book review, front page, by Helen Vendler. She's a professor of English at, at Boston University. She could not find a single thing to admire in the book blasted the book from beginning to end. She's very much like Gloria, who happens that they're friends. Whether there's any collusion there, Heather, no, no, I don't care. Her review did not please me, but it didn't upset me to the place where I really had to crisis it out. 
my publisher was much more upset than I was about it. Adwitz, who was president of Holt Reinhardt and, went, and who is the sole executive of Robert Frost's estate, phoned me, uh, asked me if I'd seen the review I had, uh, told me then I must write an answer to that. And I told him that I didn't approve of this kind of counter response, that I would not write an answer, that I hoped that the other reviews would counterbalance that one. What actually happened was that a great many people, I shouldn't say a great many, several people, wrote in to the editor of the New York Times Book Review uh, complaining, protesting that this was an unbalanced, unfair review, and scolding him for uh, using a, a diatribe like that. And apparently he was guided by the uh, motto, all the neighbors fit to print, and he did not see fit to print a single one of those letters attacking Helen Zandler or attacking him. I was not surprised at that, because four years earlier, he had not seen fit to print a single one of several letters he received attacking Richard Poirier's review of my first volume. There was one attack on the New York Times Book Review and on Helen Zendler, which he could not suppress, he could not censor, and uh, this was written by Van Allen Bradley, the uh, literary editor of the Chicago Daily News. Bradley started off by talking about Helen Zendler. Started off by take the risk of being immodest to quote this one sentence. He started off by saying that it was a thoroughly reprehensible, and I've forgotten what his other adjective was, dastardly, uh, what was implied, review which the New York Times had run on the front page one week ago. That dates him. That's where he was back there at the very beginning of this controversy. And then he went on, and for five paragraphs, took exception to what Helen Zendler did and had said in his review, and uh, finally wound up that part of his review by saying, do not be misled by the New York Times or by the malice which Helen Zendler displayed. That started the controversy off well enough now in summary. Uh, I, I've given you this background because it does color my present attitude, but the question about the crisis for criticism really comes down to this, as far as I am concerned. Right now, I have gone through these experiences where I've seen what I consider some beautiful reviews, and then I've seen reviews which are diametrically opposed. Now, is the crisis for criticism something which is unusual at the present time? Does it involve these extreme positions? Or are we in a state of criticism as usual? I'd be more inclined to say that the condition that exists at the present time is very much like so far as this kind of criticism is concerned. Um, this question is gratifying, uh, and our message to the question appears to appear on the panel, uh, because he occupies a position, I think, 
for Europe, the Luxembourg arranges an etiquette, Fabian's etiquette, the publishing house, it contracts with the tumble of books, the media, yes, the press shop for the flow of them, they come in and we have to make almost that amounts to instant criticism if they excuse the use of that phrase. And I think that gives them a view and a perspective of the whole field which might differ from neither right nor wrong necessarily, but certainly differ from those who take have a longer view or are able to take a longer view and to take more time with their books. Mr. Prescott has uh, been a teacher in addition to an editor and reviewer, and he was also a very courageous reviewer because he left the protection of a reviewer's chair and wrote a book of his own, thus forcing him into the open to withstand the slings and arrows of other book reviewers. In his book, The World of Their Own, a study of show. It is not, I gather from the criticism which he received, the conventional view of an old boy's look at his own school. If I read our statement correctly, uh, we have just heard from two hothouse products of the academy, and now we have come to the merchandising vehicle of the marketplace. Uh, I, I told Tom last when he was good enough to ask me to appear on this panel that uh, I would be glad to do so. My instant reaction was that I wanted to attack the attack. Uh, I thought about it for a while, and I realized that perhaps the, the state of book reviewing, I can't talk about serious criticism so-called, I am a mere reviewer, as we are called. Uh, perhaps uh, we do have our, our shortcomings. They became more apparent to me as, as, as I looked over what uh, I thought I was trying to do and what it seemed to me uh, my colleagues on the Times and elsewhere were trying to do. On the other hand, uh, I did feel that uh, this particular statement and a lot of what we have heard uh, about reviewing and criticism in this country in recent years uh, is, to put it politely, inadequate. Uh, it is vague without being complex. It is severe, but at the same time it is timely. Uh, I felt that perhaps uh, those of us who were trying to do uh, piece of work, whether uh, we, we had the time to reflect and do a long piece of, of work on a, on a given author, or whether we had to respond to the immediate event as I have to do, uh, we might do our job a little bit better if we had some really good, really good criticism. What we have here in this statement, I think, uh, are the same words arranged as they have been arranged for decades. Uh, this is the same uh, kind of thing that we've heard uh, in the 60s and in the 50s. In fact, we've heard it uh, probably uh, as long as anyone can remember and beyond that. Uh, I think particularly of an English writer named John Upton 200 years ago who complained that unfortunately the state of book reviewing was in, in bad shape, uh, that there were too many, uh, too many people trying their hands at it. Uh, once upon a time, uh, you had to have some kind of education uh, to review a book. And now he said, only a confident brow and a heart of steam was required. Um, it occurred to me that perhaps uh, the confident brow and the heart of spleen served a number of very good critics, uh, H.L. Mencken, for instance, very well. Um, anyway, what, uh, what did disturb me was that this is, like many assaults of its time, uh, is neither specific in its criticism, uh, nor does it suggest uh, where improvement might be made. Um, also, what bothered me, I think, in the end, as I, as I read it several times, was that the, the vague terms seem to suggest that uh, possibly we might profit, we reviewers and critics lumped together, by some common background, some common outlook and standards. Uh, this, I feel, uh, and this is, is 
back to my first point, uh, is, a, um, it, it, it's a very dangerous thing to, uh, for us to start to, to face. Uh, T.S. Eliot once said that really what it came down to for a critic was you have to be very, very bright. Uh, it's too late for most of us to worry about that at this time. Uh, we have to make do with what we have. But it is possibly about the only uh, serious requirement that you can make of a critic or a reviewer. Uh, Eliot went on to say elsewhere that uh, the business of the critic was the elucidation of text and the correction of taste. And perhaps that is about as far uh, as anyone should go. When you go beyond that in trying to define what critics as a whole should do in terms of their philosophy or whatever, I, I think you do run into trouble. Um, shared assumptions, uh, as we have seen in various schools of a critic, uh, will, I think, uh, at least when they begin, provide a, a certain thrust and vitality, uh, but they tend to coagulate. Uh, the critic then is left supporting these assumptions like the mariner with his albatross. Uh, they will not, in the long run, do him much good. Uh, there's always been a temptation, it seems to me, to believe that if only intellectuals or even men of good will could agree on something, they could get it done. And it seems to me that the lesson of the past decade after Vietnam is that it is clear that you cannot. Uh, and I would like to see this particular uh, uh, assumption uh, finished forever. I, of course, can speak only uh, for the reviewers, and they would not allow me to speak for them, so I, I speak anyway. Uh, it is true that, uh, uh, that all, all critics, all reviewers, particularly reviewers, I think, have a masochistic strain to them. Even George Steiner, who's the best in my generation, by far the best critic, uh, has uh, his doubts about the value of, of his career. I think perhaps it is helpful for us all to look with some humility upon what we do in the face of the artistry we're being criticized. Perhaps we don't have to go as far as Mr. Steiner and say that uh, it's only ashes, we, we look upon the ashes of our own failed talents. Uh, but it is true that if you will look at uh, almost any critic, particularly one with several drinks in him, you'll see that uh, he starts to talk about himself as a parasite upon the, uh, the world of art in general. And in that light, I will try to do what I think, uh, at least what I would prefer to have seen statement be uh, to uh, look at what is wrong or uh, with reviewing as it's done today or uh, what we should be doing. Um, certainly, you have to start by saying, of course, uh, book critics, book reviewers are more evident, more in view than they have ever been. Uh, this is all right. Uh, the ones that are, are most evident perhaps are not worth discussing. Uh, a statement of this kind, a criticism of reviewing is only good if you look uh, at the people whom you think are good to begin with. Uh, and I think you begin by saying that the, the role of the book critic or reviewer, I tend to use these words interchangeably, in the mass media is that of a third party in a triangular discussion between writers and readers. Uh, to a certain extent, we uh, can be used by you to suggest what perhaps you might like to read that is current and available. Uh, more important, I think, we keep such, such readers as we have informed to a certain extent of what is going on. Uh, in the world of books. Uh, we are at an immediate disadvantage here because unlike film critics and unlike theater critics, we cannot ever have a command of the, of the field that we presume to work with. Uh, good film critics go and good theater critics see all there is just about. Uh, we can't do that with, as you know, 30,000 books a year being published. Uh, we have perhaps Out of these 30,000 books, uh, some of us can deal with 50, 100, 150. 
uh, certainly no more. So we are always wallowing in a sea of books that, that, that we don't know. Um, then I think that what a, a reviewer should be trying to do is, is to follow George Simon in his uh, announcement that to read well is to take risks. Uh, so is to write about books well is to take risks. Uh, we must not fear to be wrong. Uh, after all, what sets a reviewer apart from the serious critics, uh, those of us who, who do this all the time in, in the papers and the magazines, is that we are forced to respond instantly to a great variety of books uh, without any benefit of a crude opinion on these books or the fields from which they come. Uh, the variety is, is, is perfectly appalling. It, it could be a biography of Eisenhower or a novel of John Barr. Whatever it is, uh, we, we, we have to select the right books. We have to uh, get the core of that book uh, whatever kind of book it is, and in a very short space, we have to be able to make some kind of short observation about it. Uh, your good reviewers will do this, the bad ones uh, seem unable to do uh, cope with this at all. Um, also, I think the good reviewer is, again, unlike uh, the serious critic, he uh, writes for an ephemeral medium. He, he must write to be read. Say something clever. <laughs> what do you mean? I want you to record. Say something very ah, clever. <laughs> I can uh, tell you at any rate that I find it touching that in this heat you have ventured out and uh, to only to show me the working of this wonderful machinery.